Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. All too often, you know, when we do teach a Torah portion, or let's say we do teach a special series like Footsteps of Messiah, or the Song of Songs, we get so involved in the information that we forget that it's supposed to be transformational. It's not always obvious. Sometimes we're just trying to process the information to the point that we don't even back away just for a second and consider how can this be transformational? How can I change my life today based on this information, not just having more information? And I think that's a trap that even teachers fall into. They start teaching the information, but they don't necessarily teach how it transforms the student of the word. And so uh, I'd like to do a Chaye Sarah, or the life of Sarah. The first one that we're going to do today, the first part of it is very practical. I think it's very practical. It's a little bit of the information I presented at Revive this last summer in the leadership conference. And the more I thought about it, you know, not everybody has the extra time to make it to a leadership conference. And maybe not everybody considers themselves an important enough leader to even go to a leadership conference. Don't think like that. We're all leaders and we're all followers in some way. So it doesn't matter if you're leading a huge congregation, if you're leading a small fellowship, or if you're just leading your family. You know, this is important. We're, we're warned, you know, don't forget, don't refuse the instruction of your father. Don't refuse the teaching of your mother. That's important. That's part of our walk. And just knowing sometimes... Um, you know, like Paul, he was a father in faith to Timothy. We have Elijah mentoring Elisha. We have this pattern in scripture, and sometimes us old folks, yeah, we have a few more wrinkles, and no, we don't always know how to update our iPhones. But just by virtue of, of lots of years and experience, we learn things that you just don't learn in college. And so the practical aspect sometimes is maybe what we're failing to pass on to a younger generation, uh, or even those who are just younger in experience, not age. Maybe as an adult or midlife, somewhere in there, you decided, hey, I'm going to start holding a Torah fellowship, or I'm, I'm going to start holding a Bible study. How do I do that? Well, I'm just going to give you some very practical tips today. I think things you can incorporate very quickly, some things to look out for, and by no means is this comprehensive. Absolutely, it is not comprehensive. But I just want to hit some highlights with you. And then I want to extend that next week, do another session that's just going to extend out of this very, what I'm considering, very practical session today on leadership and look to Sarah, because we're told to do that in scripture. It says, look to Abraham, your father, and look to Sarah, your mother. You're supposed to learn something from this uh, couple. And it includes lessons of leadership. And so that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to take Chaye Sarah and look at some of the events surrounding the life of Sarah, how um, we see some some twinning of prophecy with her and Abraham, and see how that informs us again in a very practical way. We'll just call this the practical princess and the flock. <laughs> 
which I think is pretty good because we know that uh, Sarah, she her name is Princess uh, Sarai. Uh, her name was changed from Sarai, which is my princess, and then Sarah, which is like everybody's princess, the whole world's princess. She was going to be the mother of many nations. So she was going to become the princess of the world in faith, just like Abraham became their father in faith. So we can learn some practical lessons from this practical princess. And even though we don't necessarily see her out leading flocks around like we do uh, Rebecca, and Rachel, nevertheless, uh, she's the paradigm. She's going to be the the mother and the uh, grandmother in faith that they're going to draw strength from, and we can too. So, uh, and what is special about this week, of course, is it's the Torah portion Chaye Sarah. This picture you're looking at right here was taken at her tomb at Chevron, and it's. Basically, it says Tzion Kever, which is um, a tomb of Zion. And then it says Sarah Imanu, Sarah, our mother. And it's a very special place. Uh, obviously, there's lots of violence surrounding that place. So if you've ever been privileged to be able to go, Baruch Hashem, because there's, there's something interesting going on there. And I don't know how much we will talk about it in this part one of the session, but definitely we want to talk about part two. Why is this cave so important? It was so important. This piece of land was so important that three sets of the patriarchs and matriarchs are buried there. And based on the, the name of the town, which is Kiryat Arba, the cave is Machpelah. The town is Kiryat Arba, and of course, the, the general area is referred to as Hebron, Hebron. And this particular weekend, you're going to have lots of visitors there because that fourth couple, because Machpelah means like pairs or twins, we know of three of the twins, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and then Jacob and Leah. But who's the fourth set? Who makes it Kiryat Arba? Well, according to the tradition, this is where Adam and Eve were also buried. And this is why Sarah made her way there to intercede for Isaac when Abraham was offering him on Mount Moriah. And this is why she wasn't at Beersheba afterward that Abraham has to go to Hebron in order to locate her and then, of course, bury her there. And so this weekend, in honor of Sarah and the Torah portion, Chaye Sarah, typically tens of thousands of Jews will descend upon this town of Hebron on that Shabbat. Uh, it's a special day to commemorate our connection to the tombs of the, the, the four pairs. And so many times, I mean, here's a challenge, just do a word search. Look up how many times long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, they are referred to like shield of Abraham or I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look how many times they are mentioned and established in scripture as pictures of the faith that we're supposed to have. And so this was one of the biggest, most public real estate deals in all world history, because we're even told how much Abraham paid. He didn't, he didn't look for the bargain. He didn't look for the markdown. He didn't go below appraisal when he purchased this little piece of real estate. 
for a tomb for himself and then uh, Isaac and Jacob and their wives, he knew that it was going to be so important. He paid full price. Nobody can uh, accuse him of cheating Ephron out of this particular piece of property. And there's all sorts of resurrection language surrounding this, especially as you read it in the Hebrew, it talks about how the tree stood up. You think, wow, they did what? The tree stood up. But that's the beauty of being able to go back into the Hebrew is you can see resurrection pictures that sometimes we miss in an English translation. At any rate, the the anti-Semitism that has always been rampant in the world, this is one of the hardest things to leverage out of world history because, it, you know, from ancient time, this is the understanding that Abraham paid for this particular piece of property. And this transaction is recorded for us so that we can connect to it. We can connect to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, the, the leadership that the patriarchs and the matriarchs patterned for us, they showed us how to relate to all sorts of people. They showed us how to relate to enemies. They even showed us how to relate to followers. Remember, it says that uh, Abraham and Sarah made souls in Haran. They were evangelists. They were bringing people to the, the, the Elohim of Abraham in a time of rampant idolatry. So, you know, if, if you're a budding evangelist and you just want to say, well, where do I start learning how to be a good evangelist? Well, you read about the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Maybe they were the first successful evangelists. Noah, I think he made a really good attempt. He tried for 100 years and just couldn't get there. But Abraham and Sarah, it says that they made souls. And then later, when you see the size of Abraham's little personal army, you realize, wow, they made a lot of souls. In Haran, a lot of people joined themselves to Abraham and Sarah. Um, but also, again, in how they sometimes dealt with enemies, you know, the, the situation with Hagar, you know, Sarah, it, it feels like that's the, the thing that kind of sullies Sarah's reputation uh, when she says, you know, take Hagar. Well, she apparently uh, wasn't listening to the spirit at that particular point. She made one wrong call, but Abraham wasn't allowed to discount her voice after that, because when she would speak according to the promise, then he was told, you better listen to her. You're going to make a mistake if you don't listen to her. And so when Sarah saw that it was time to send Ishmael away with Hagar, Abraham had to do it. They, they counterbalanced one another wonderfully. But sometimes you're, you're dealing with people who are just difficult to reason with. You know, when Abraham chased after the kings who kidnapped Lot and his family, and of course, the Sodom and Gomorrah, he chases them down with a sword. You know, he, he's not backing up right here. So it's not always easy to know when to be compassionate, hospitable, be kind, and when to just chase somebody down and say, give me back what belongs to me. Or you know, at least to have that confrontation. I don't expect any of you to take up a sword and chase somebody, you know, <laughs> across the desert. But even Yeshua and the apostles sometimes had to confront difficult people. And anytime you're going to herd a flock, whether it's of sheep or people, you're going to have some who rebel against the shepherd or the leadership. And you're going to have some 
who are just simply slower to learn. And that's the, the most difficult job of the shepherd is trying to figure out, do I have a sheep that's not really a sheep here? Is there a wolf underneath that wool? Or is this just simply a slow sheep? <laughs> is this a wounded sheep that doesn't trust me yet? There's all sorts of questions they have to sort through. Um, so those who have just seen our walk with Yeshua as being uh, peace, love, and casseroles, and there's never any rebukes, discipline, correction, we have all sorts of verses that would contradict that. And we have, uh, you know, John the Baptist and Yeshua calling people vipers. Yeshua getting exasperated with people and saying, how long am I going to have to suffer with you? Paul, you foolish Galatians <laughs> who has bewitched you. That's pretty strong uh, language. Going out to, to gatherings of people and congregations, or in some cases, the sects, S-E-C-T, um, like the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, uh, those who gathered up to entrap. See, not every little congregation or fellowship is there for the right reasons. So we have to keep that in the realm of possibility as we sort through problems, whether it's our family problems and we're trying to exert leadership in our family, whether it's maybe in a home fellowship or a small fellowship or even a larger congregation. Uh, there will be vipers. There will be foolish people. There will be people who have been led astray and bewitched. There will be people who demand the greatest amount of energy and yet contribute the least to the congregation. These people will be here probably until Messiah comes. So the best thing we can do is maybe learn some tips. And the most important thing to remember is how strongly we are warned don't believe just every person who is trying to walk with you is of like kind and like mind. That's very important. It doesn't mean they're of identi identical kind and mind. It does not mean that. They simply need to be of like kind and mind. There were different tribes. There were different clans within the tribes. They had different responsibilities. There were Levites. There were priests. And when they were jealous of one another, things didn't go well. They weren't supposed to be identical, but they were supposed to be of like mind. And this is what we're looking for. And so one thing to, to remind yourself that not everyone who walks among us is walking with us. What do I mean by that? Well, I can only tell you my experience. Uh, back in the, the late 90s, it didn't feel like there were a lot of people doing Torah. Or if they were, we just didn't know, you know, who or where they were in large numbers. You know, we, we connected here and there with other fellowships or, or particular uh, teachers, but it just didn't feel like it was something huge. We, we felt pretty isolated, but we nevertheless felt like this was an authentic move of the Spirit. And so anytime a new person came into the congregation, we were so glad to see someone come in, that sometimes we welcome things in that didn't belong there. And what we were looking for was numbers. We said, you know what, if huge numbers of people start coming in and learning about Torah and keeping the Shabbat and the feast, that validates us. That means we're on the right track. Well, sometimes that can mean you're on the wrong track. Don't use numbers as the test of whether you're moving in the right direction. Sometimes Abraham and Sarah had big numbers. Other times, they were just as subject to the famine as everybody else. 
they had their ups and their downs. So don't depend upon the numbers as some sort of report card as to how well your fellowship is going. It doesn't validate it. And it's also part of our ego. Hate to say that, but I'm just speaking from experience. There's something about our ego, especially as we're trying to explain things to friends and family who don't necessarily agree with the path that we're on. Our ego says, you know, if a whole bunch of people do this, then maybe they'll accept it. Then I'll feel like I'm validated again. That doesn't validate it. And that's you're you're just looking for those numbers to make yourself feel better and look better to your family and friends. Don't let ego, don't let this need to feel like, am I the only one out here? Because see, Elijah went through that too. And as it turned out, he wasn't the only one, right? (laughs) Sometimes we just feel like we're the only ones. Don't be so happy to see somebody who, who rips out the name Yeshua or is wearing a tzitzit that you don't really test what's going on with that person. You know, All other doctrinal disagreements aside, and some of them significant, don't forget, there's two to four percent of the population that are psychopaths, all right? And anytime there is a group where they sense that there is a vacuum of leadership, which often occurs, that's why we're talking about it. Often there's a vacuum of leadership because we've arrived at this place, well, you know, we follow the traditions of men. And so now we just can't trust anybody to be a leader. Well, that sets us up for these very people that I'm talking about, these predators, these wolves in sheep's clothing. If they sense weak leadership, uh, disunified leadership, leadership without confidence, inexperienced leadership, that's exactly what they'll go there like a magnet to take advantage of that. So here's what we're warned. And this sounds pretty rough starting off, but let's just get the rough stuff out of the way. Okay. And then it'll it'll get better, maybe. (laughs) But if, if we don't know these sorts of things are coming, if we just think again, everybody coming in is coming in with peace, love, and casseroles, we're going to pay a price for that. And so will you congregation, you're going to go through split after split after split after split and disunity. And it doesn't mean that you can stop it just by knowing these verses here, but it means your eye can be better focused. And there might be some of these things that you won't have to go through that you can send these folks on their way faster before they just destroy things. So here's what 1 John 2, 18 and 19 say. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they are that they all are not of us and this is what i mean that not everybody walking among us is walking with us because in history we can look back at this period that we would call it the apostolic period where you've got first generation apostles people who have either walked with yeshua or walked with people who walked with yeshua And already then, false doctrines, wicked plans, evil designs had begun among even those fellowships of the apostles, people who walked with Yeshua, 
that's pretty serious. And if if they could pull the wool over their eyes, imagine what they can do with ours. And so we have to take these scriptures to heart and say, there may be people from time to time who will walk with us for a period of time, but they're not really on the same page as us. And if we give them time, we'll find out what page they're on. They don't typically whip out the, the, the strange stuff the first Shabbat or the first feast, but they will. If you test them, if you give them time, they cannot help but tell you who they are and how they are you know, departing from sound doctrine or trying to divide the body. And so we have to take this to heart that there will be people among us who are not really of us. Like I said, just because they know Yeshua and they can name off all the books of the Bible in Hebrew, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean a thing. You're going to have to test the spirits. You're going to have to test what spirit they're of. And we especially need to pay attention at the feasts. Jude 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13. The warning here is very specific. It says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Well, that's much stronger than I think I would have ever put it, but it's in scripture. And so the caution here is if your radar should always be up, that's one thing. But if you're gathering together for a feast, and I would say this also includes Shabbat. Shabbat is one of the feasts, especially on your your high holy days, though. It says they will come and feast with you without fear. And how will you you know who they are? Well, it's going to be difficult because he says they're hidden reefs, just like a, a ship will hit a reef and it didn't know it was there because it looked like, you know, the water looked like the rest of the water. But no, there was a hidden reef under there to shipwreck you. This is what they do. They're, they know how to conceal things until the right opportunity presents itself. And often these opportunities will pop up at the feasts. And he says, these people, you can tell them they are clouds without water. They have a lot of promise, but they're never going to water anything. They're never going to bear fruit unless it's bad fruit. Since they're carried along by the winds, by the spirits. You don't want to use this as the only test, but if these folks have been kicked out of fellowship, out of fellowship, or, or even church, 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 if they've gone from place to place to place to place with no really good explanation as to why, or maybe there is an explanation and that's your clue that they're, they're, that they're just blowing up fellowships everywhere they go. Now, on the other side, you have to test it too, because it could be that they were trying to look for a good fit in a congregation. They weren't doing any damage. They just needed the right congregational or fellowship fit for them where not only could they serve, but there was ministry there that could meet their needs, right? You can't just, you know, paint this with a broad brush. You can't. But because the, the warning is so strong, 
We have to beware of those who come into our fellowships. Don't just, you know, run and hug everybody. No, everybody's welcome here. Well, be careful when you say that, because as they go in and they begin to destroy things and separate sheep out, and you're going to realize, oh, that was never a sheep at all. Maybe we should say all sheep are welcome. (laughs) Not every wolf in a sheep's clothing is welcome here. And that's just to raise your awareness. We want to love everyone, have compassion on everyone, be hospitable to everyone. But the scripture right here is telling us, be careful as somebody comes into your fellowship, just don't go hook, line, and sinker. Because a cloud, if you look at it, so this is a good thing. It's going to bring some rain. It's going to bring something positive. No, no, it's not. There's no water in there. None at all. So scripture is telling us there's going to be some train wrecks. Those are inevitable. You're going to have good times and bad times and in between times with your fellowship, but it doesn't have to be a full speed train wreck. Scripture is giving us some warning lights. It's, It's showing us how to hear the alarms it's giving us strategies to put up some barricades if necessary, if, if we hear wolves and, and <laughs> predators howling out there. There's even switches, how you can move to a different track if necessary, or you can put somebody else on a different track and basically just send them right on out. So here's some just basic observations about our fellowships, congregations, and so forth. Something to remember. And this, this is something, some of us, if we have a leadership style, it's very loose, very compassionate, very, I don't want to tell anybody what to do. They're all grownups, but some are just the opposite. We're very disciplined. Uh, we're very structured. We, we like all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. Sometimes we can be demanding and it is frustrating to want more for people than they want for themselves but that's the you know kind of the territory when you sign up to be a rabbi or a pastor it, it goes with the shepherd job wanting more for the sheep than they want for themselves on any given day but that's you you set the bar and it's okay if it's high because yeshua set the bar high for his disciples uh, doesn't mean that that everybody will reach your expectations, but as long as they know you have high expectations, that you believe they can attain, uh, I think that's a, a great encourager, just like with your children. As long as they believe you believe they can attain, then I think they'll stretch themselves farther than if you just have no expectations. So if you're that type of personality where you are a little more rigid in my way or the highway and, and so forth. I'm kind of taking you back in the other direction now from strong warnings. Look at, you know, for these people, they might be coming into your congregation. You know, you, you might have a hagar. You didn't show everything right off the bat. But then, you know, once she's carrying Abraham's child, now the real hagar comes out. And that's something to be aware of. But on the other side, we have to realize that all our congregants are volunteers. And in most cases, so are the leadership. You have some pastors or rabbis in Hebrew roots or the Messianic movement who are paid, but I would say proportionately few derive any sort of salary or benefit. Most of them are volunteers too. And so when you're dealing with volunteers, it, it 
requires a little bit of a special way of dealing with people because they're not getting a paycheck. They're not there working for you. They are volunteering for the kingdom of heaven. And so you're being a steward of the kingdom as you help to to manage the flock. And it's like Mark McClendon said years ago, what the father really wants to know is, can he trust you with his flock? Not to abuse them, to keep them safe, yes, but also not to abuse them. And so we have to be careful to deal with our congregants with the understanding they're all volunteers. They're there because they want to be. So we we have to be careful of not doing things to make them not want to be there. Most of our congregants, and I'm going to use some big words here, but don't don't get you know <laughs> upset. I'm going to tell you what they mean. Most congregants will place an emphasis on orthodoxy, all right? And all that means, it's an academic word, is that's a study of the word. That is your orthodoxy, the study of the word, along with orthopraxis. You can almost hear practice in orthopraxis. That's what you're doing based on your study of the word. So your orthodoxy, your study of the word, and your orthopraxis, you're practicing of what you studied. And you're going to have a wide range of people in your fellowship. You're going to have some congregants or members who enjoy orthodoxy. They just want to study, 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 study. They just want to find out new things, new things, new things. But as you look at their practical lives, there's very limited orthopraxis. They're in love with the idea of Shabbat but they're not so in love with doing the things you're supposed to do on Shabbat and not doing the things you're not supposed to do on Shabbat. And a lot of that, you know, you can't blame that on rebellion because often the the problem here is they don't know enough. They've not learned long enough to under even understand how to do it, much less how to do it consistently. And so, yes, we need to study, but this is why you need a systematic method of study. You should be doing the Torah portions. If you're just jumping all over the place every week, your roots will be going out, but they won't be going down. Your roots need to go down. So these, these trees won't move when the those winds come that Jude was talking about. These things that are just tossed about by the wind, you don't want your people to be those people who are tossed about by the wind. So by doing the Torah portions, by taking them on a systematic study of the word, instead of just wherever the wind blows you this week, what you're doing is you're helping them put down roots. And so as they learn orthodoxy by studying, then they can begin to do better with orthopraxis. They can do better practicing, putting into a practical way what they've studied. Now, some people like I say, it's you have to know your flock. Some people, they're very happy just learning without really doing much. They're they're very proud of what they know, not so much what they do. But that's where you as the, the leader, the shepherd, you can motivate them and help them reset those bars of practice. No sense in studying if you're not going to do it. You want to study it so you can do it well. But just studying without doing, um, James is really clear. Faith without works is dead. You have to have two. So they're on a they're on a wide scale. Even the study of the word. Some people are just beginners in the word. Some people have studied the Bible all their lives, and maybe they just started doing the feast or they just started doing Shabbat. 
it, it would be wonderful if we had all started at the same time and grew at the same rate, but we won't and we don't. So you have to recognize that scale and try to aim somewhere in the middle. You know, if you're trying to say, well, what do I teach on this week? How deep can I go in the Torah portion? Well, try to hit somewhere in the middle. Make sure that those who are just starting out can understand, you know, at least half of it, hopefully more than half. But those who may even be ahead of you in study, make sure they can derive something from it too, especially something to help them put into practice. Another characteristic of our fellowships, they're going to educate themselves in the Torah almost exclusively online. There aren't a lot of universities or colleges or yeshivas set up for people like us. You you have to gather a little bit over here, and then you have to gather a little bit over here, and then you have to gather a little bit over here. And yes, many of the things you learned in the church still will serve you well, right? Uh, but there will be some new things that you'll need to learn, some new methods of study and so forth. But this is a challenge because it's not like everybody sat in the same class and learned the same thing this week. We may have all read the Torah portion, but we didn't all read the same commentaries. We don't, you know, as shepherds, you don't have control over what people are doing on the internet, and nor would you want to. Uh, you would want them to control themselves. And again, if they're, they're studying exclusively online, there's a good chance the roots are spreading out, but they're not going down because they'll jump from thing to thing to thing that looks interesting. Sometimes you're going to have to read things that aren't that interesting. They might appear to be a little bit tedious, but um, taken as a whole, it's going to be smiling out of one side of your mouth and frowning out of the other. That's the way that we learn. Um, And so because they're learning almost exclusively online, Often they don't have a background in hermeneutics, and so they don't know how to process the information they're taking in. And then it just becomes kind of a roller coaster ride. Oh, this is fun. Oh, this is fun. Let's go around again. Well, the problem with those those fun things is that the roller coaster always ends up back where it started. It never goes anywhere. Uh, (laughs) You're just not getting anywhere. You're just getting a thrill. And we can get addicted to those Torah thrills that really never take us to those places of good practice, of helping us to produce the fruit in our lives. You know, having the rain in the cloud that could make something grow because we're just on the roller coaster loop, having a big time screaming and waving our arms in the air because this was, you know, so interesting. Look what I found. Some of that is okay. It it brings us joy when we find these treasures, new and old. But if we don't know how to read those sources, if we don't even know how to look for a, a sound source, that's a problem. Because the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what is the agenda of the person who produced this website? In fact, it applies to me. If you go to thecreationgospel.com, you need to ask yourself, what is this lady's agenda? What is she driving at? What is she after? What are the filters that she has on? Where was she educated? What were her influences? Who does she hang around with? You can tell a lot by answering those questions so that being human beings, 
if we do maybe take a, a little bit of a curve out of a straight line, then you as the reader will know, ah, okay, it's not scripture, all right? This is something a human being taught. Yes, it's a gift within the body. It's there for the edification of the body. Doesn't mean we won't ever make a mistake. Just like it doesn't mean Abraham and Sarah never made a mistake. It says, walk before me and be perfect. That word perfect in Hebrew, it means to be a person of integrity. It doesn't mean Abraham and Sarah would ever be 100% perfect. They were human beings. And so even looking at Sarah's actions concerning Hagar, what was her filter? What was her wound? What was the history? What was the background? So why did she behave in this way? Why did she deviate from being this icon of faith in this one instance? Well, we can look at her filter and we can say, this is why this happened. Why would Abraham not want to send Ishmael away? What do we know about Abraham? That was his filter, right? So anytime you're reading anything that a human being has put together, you need to know what the filters are, what the agendas are, what are they after? And that's the first question, I think, as you if you're going to look at an outside source. But there's also rules of hermeneutics that you can use. And I put one in the newsletter this week for you, which is being able to distinguish between meaning and significance in scripture. One never changes and one is expected to change. It's, it's, I think it's a great tool. And I think it, it won't cut off every argument, but it'll cut off a lot of arguments that can crop up in our, in our congregations and fellowships. Because sometimes you've just found another significance to the scripture. It doesn't mean that you're, you can now formulate a new doctrine. And so knowing rules like the rule of first mention, the rule of progressive mention, the rule of complete mention, context is everything just some basic rules of hermeneutics will help you read through these sources with a much more critical eye so that you can get the best information out of there and get rid of the stuff that you don't need to internalize. Uh, But we tend to be helpless because nobody ever helped us to understand how to do this. They never taught us these basic rules. They're called midot in Hebrew, hermeneutics in English. There are rules to studying scripture or any written text, doesn't have to be scripture, any written text. But the one thing, because we don't know how to use these tools, we don't have these tools in our toolbox, is we'll run across a scripture and we say, oh, this is what this scripture means. This is what it meant all along. And then before we realize it, now we have just developed a new doctrine or a new practice But in order to be okay with this new understanding that I have with this scripture, now I've got to toss out that scripture and that scripture and that scripture and that scripture without ever even attempting to reconcile. And this is what hermeneutics teaches you how to do. You don't have to hook up on a, with a pet doctrine and they just keep going around. I just, uh, quit answering so many emails because I'm like, I cannot believe this is still circulating after 25 years, but it is. People just keep falling for the same old stuff. And I'm like, why are you not going to some of the older uh, men and women who've been around? Well, look at their material. Look at the, the literature they've put out there to help you reconcile scriptures that would appear to disagree. Because if you have to toss other scriptures instead of reconcile them, you've not done anything. You just attach to something because, well, I have to pick what it means now because 
this says this, and this says this. Well, okay, um, Jacob marries sisters, but the Tauruses don't marry sisters. Do you have to choose one or the other, or can you still reconcile the fact that Jacob did marry sisters? And then later, Moses comes along, and as he's giving them the Torah, the Holy One tells Moses, tells them, don't do that anymore. Tell them, cut that out. <laughs> I, can, I can make good things happen out of bad things, but tell them, just quit doing it. Same thing with slavery. Are slavery okay? Or is slavery not okay? Well, you're going to, do I toss this one and, and keep that one? No, you have to understand. Did it exist? Yes. But does Torah come along and say, do everything you can to stop it? Yes. That's not validating it. It's saying it exists. Don't do it. And if we don't understand that process of saying, okay, let me line up these scriptures that just seem to be giving me different messages. Is there a way of reconciling that? Hermeneutics is a wonderful thing to teach your congregants or your, you know, the people in your fellowship because so many times when we have a blow up over a particular doctrine, it's because we've locked on to one explanation of something and simply dismissed every other scripture that disagrees with that, not attempted to reconcile it at all. I think that some of that's fear. I've just got to pick the right one. And they feel like they've picked the right one. And, and you don't have to do that. There, there's methods we can go about where we can cut that down to a minimum. What we're also coming up against is you, you might have almost like two separate congregations within a congregation. You might have the, the churchy side. They're, they still basically just want a Sabbath-keeping church. And then you have others that are basically on the synagogue side. They're basically a synagogue that, that believes that Yeshua is the Messiah. And often they disagree greatly on things like music, the order of service, sources to study from, prayers. And often it's because they will attach a negative emotion when they hear words like Jew, Judaism, Talmud, Rabbinic. On the other hand, the people on the other side of the aisle, they might be attaching nothing but positive to those same words. That is not a new problem, folks. But if you're a shepherd and you're not expecting it, it, you know, it will knock you back a few steps. Like, what do I do now? I have two congregations in one. It's a historic problem. In fact, you had poor observant Christian communities existing almost into the medieval period which is much later than earlier belief. Most of us think, well, you know, the Torah keepers were pretty much stamped out by 325 AD. There were still communities of believers who were Torah observant almost up into uh, the medieval period. Fifth to 10th centuries is, is the, the book that I found or the, the paper that I found where they've recorded these communities. So imagine, you know, this going on for hundreds of years from the beginning, were believers in Yeshua. They they came in only with synagogue practices. That's all they knew. And then little by little, of course, as the churches form and they have different traditions and customs and practices and so forth, trying to merge all that, they went through the same thing we're going through. And so we, we have to take a look at who is our congregation? Do we have a split congregation like that? Or Maybe we're just a group of people that came out of a church, so we can kind of grow together in that regard. We can kind of explore the Jewish sources together at our own pace. 
Maybe it's a group of people who have more of a synagogue background. They can grow at their own pace. But most likely, you're going to have a mixture. And if you head too strongly in one direction or the other, you just better get ready. But if you if you know that that's the dynamic, then you can kind of get out ahead of it, hopefully, and start talking to people. Say, hey, this is a historic problem. Let's do better. Let's do better than, than we've done in the past. We've got a lot of folks who they're feeling a little off balance. They feel like maybe somebody lied to them, didn't give them all the information, and now they found the Torah. Uh, Now they found Hebrew. And not really having anybody there to mentor them, to guide them in the right direction, to really function as a shepherd or a teacher. Uh, They may have been evangelized, but that was about the extent of it. They will start grabbing onto these ideas. They'll start quoting, you know, Luke, stand in the path, you know, ask for the ancient way. And that will translate to them as everything ancient is righteous. Everything ancient was not righteous, right? Because we have found something that was ancient and righteous doesn't mean everything ancient is righteous, uh, they also, at this stage, will often over-literalize. They will hyper-literalize the scripture. Again, refusing to look at other contexts that could decode that for them. They will not even hear established doctrines that are based on a better scholarship than they're capable of at that moment. And that's fear. That's just, hey, we're, we're not saying anything bad about them. We're not trying to be negative about them. We're just recognizing that as a leader, you need to recognize this stage so you can hold their hand through it when they start hyper-literalizing, when they they start shutting down and and they refuse to read any but one source. They'll get a favorite teacher or a favorite book or something, and they won't listen to anything else or anybody else. You say, hey, wait a minute, there's better scholarship out here than what you've grabbed onto. But it's so frightening. Imagine standing on the beach. And all of a sudden, a tsunami wave starts coming at you. It's it's taller than the Empire State Building. And here it comes. That's what Torah is. And you're standing there and you've got this little cup in your hand. That's all you can take right now. And you realize, I'm about to get wiped out by this wave of Torah. I don't know what is too big. It's too huge. What do I do? All I have is this cup. And often what's in that little cup is the only thing they know how to talk about. That it was the one thing they could grab out of that wave. And rather than giving themselves the time to learn and to grow at a, at a proper pace, because they want to feel competent and because they don't want to be afraid of the tidal wave, they'll just simply shut it out. They'll grab one little topic, one little doctrine, and everything they talk about has to be around that one thing. That's okay. Hold their hand and keep encouraging them to break out of that pet doctrine. That's that's going to be your job. And that's those are some of the extremes that we might be dealing with in a Torah community. Sometimes you can recognize right off the bat that somebody is just not going to be a good fit for you. And it's not because they're too poor, they're socially inept, you know, those sorts of things. Those aren't really good reasons. But you know, in terms of fitness, where they can both serve and be served. Background, sometimes. Goals, sometimes. You can help them sort through. And and 
don't push them away just because, you know, they might have a little rough time settling in. But if after time you say, well, this is just not a good fit for you or us, I don't want you to be miserable. Maybe you can network with other communities and help them find a place that suits them. Again, not when they're they're throwing Torah bombs, trying to blow up the community, trying to take control, those sorts of things. I'm not talking about that. But again, sometimes you might have a fellowship that's got a bunch of kids and they want fellowship for their kids. That might be an important thing. Some, they just want to grow up in the teaching. They want to learn more Torah. They want to learn Hebrew, those sorts of things. All right. That may not be the place where all the kids are. But if you've got a good relationship and and if there's not that much out there, there's not that much out there. And you might have to come to an agreement like, you know what, we're going to rub each other the wrong way sometimes. But you can, if you know those extremes are out there, if you know they're coming, then you can do some planning. And in some cases, maybe for a new person, have a beginner's course or a newcomer's course. They may not be beginners, but a newcomer's course. Teach them the basics of hermeneutics. Tell them how dangerous the internet is. Uh, Tell them what your expectations in your own fellowship is. So they'll know not to introduce something that is objectionable to you and, and the community that you've already built. You just have to plan and know that it's coming. So planning is what you as a leader are going to have to do. That has to come before organizing, staffing, leading, anything. Before you do anything, you're going to have to plan. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.